Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of invented words. Uh, so in the last episode, we were talking about neologisms that were deliberately invented. And continuing that today, I wanted to start out with a distinction that we might find useful, and that's the difference between neologisms and something we might call protologisms. So a neologism is a newly coined term that's like still in the process of coming into common use. Mm -hmm. You might use the term because you're an early adopter of it, but it it might be the kind of word that people still need to look up a good bit. You might need to explain what it means if you use it in an article. Right. It could be, very much be one of those words that you get the feeling that's, that people in, in, in the culture are trying to make happen. Yeah. Like they're trying to establish it uh, and, and, and get it into the, just the, the everyday lexicon. Right. That would be what uh, happens if it's successful. It just becomes a regular word. You no longer need to explain it. You don't need to look it up. Most people just know what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a few examples of neologisms I, I could think of that have just become regular words in recent years. One great example, I think, is selfie. You know how this was once a cute new word and people would remark on the fact that it was a cute new word, like mm-hmm. the fact that it was a neologism was one of the main things you know about it. And now it's just sort of a word. Yeah. And it's it's weird. Like selfie as a term has this kind of like viral presence and movement in our in our culture. But but also the act associated with it seemed to spread with it. And I wonder to what extent are you seeing the the act, the practice of taking a selfie uh, is that pulling the term with it through our culture or is it the reverse or is it some combination of the two? Uh, I think that certainly the first part that you're mm-hmm. talking – I think there are definitely technological pressures that made room for this word to enter common usage. So the word was added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2013. Uh, but the word has a kind of interesting history before that. I was looking up what, what was the earliest use of selfie uh, because obviously the act of taking a photograph of yourself goes way back. People have been doing that for more than 100 years mm-hmm. uh, with various contraptions, even just like timers on cameras and stuff. Um, but the first documented use of the word selfie appears to come from the year 2002 <laughs> when an Australian man posted the following message on an internet forum on a news website. Specifically, this was a thread from September 13th, 2002 by a user named Hopi. H-O-P-E-Y, and the statement goes like this. Um, drunk at a mate's 21st, I tripped over and landed lip first with front teeth coming a close second on a set of steps. I had a hole about one centimeter long right through my bottom lip, and sorry about the focus, it was a selfie. Uh. He attaches a, a photo of his busted lip for people to look at. Uh, the purpose of the thread was Hopi wondering whether licking his lips would make his stitches dissolve too early. And he's, of course, apologizing for the, 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 the quality of the photograph, saying, I have taken it myself. It is a selfie. Right. So this is before selfie sticks. This is even before, you know, any kind of high-quality camera phone. Mm-hmm. This probably would have been taken, I guess, with just like a handheld digital camera mm-hmm. pointed back at his face. But he probably wouldn't have the ability to see the screen while he's taking the picture, right? So he just has to guess. Yeah, yeah. So this would yeah, been the early days of selfies when they were, they were even uh, far more chaotic. Though it's not clear that the author of this post actually intended to invent a word or even that he invented a word at all. It might have been a slang word in oral circulation before ever being written out in this context. Uh, And it does follow a standard way of inventing slang words in Australian English, which is adding a hyphen IE suffix to a noun. So like a barbecue becomes a Barbie, you know, put another shrimp on the Barbie. Uh, Or a can of beer becomes a tinny from Tin Can. Mm, I haven't heard that one in, in use, but it makes sense. And by the same lexical logic, a, a photograph of the self becomes a selfie. You know, put another duck lips on the selfie. Huh. Uh, but if this was a term in oral slang in Australian English before it appeared in print, I would say it probably wasn't being used a lot because if it was used a lot, you'd expect to find it written down at this point. 
Now, of course, the obvious question about this is like, why does it then get picked up? Why does selfie become a term? How does it create? How does this journey even begin into widespread usage? Yeah. So after 2002, it popped up here and there, but it didn't come anywhere near common usage until around 2012 when it suddenly got very popular. And this probably had to do with simultaneous techno-cultural trends. You had new generations of camera phones and of social media, uh, a way to take selfies and then also a place to post them. And this, I think the technology made a pre-existing word suddenly very useful. And it may also, I think, have played an important psychosocial role. Like, does having a word like selfie help defuse potential doubts or worries people have that they are engaging in narcissistic behavior? Does the word take an act that you might worry is unsavory and make it cute. Uh, like the, there, I was reading something where the editorial director of the Oxford Dictionaries in 2013 said specifically of the word, the use of the diminutive IE suffix is notable as it helps to turn an essentially narcissistic enterprise into something rather more endearing. But then again, maybe that's overly harsh. You could look at it the other way. Like does having a word like selfie make it easier to disparage an activity that most people do? You know, it's not like you have to be some raging narcissist to take a selfie? Does it just like make it easier to mock people like this? Hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, I can certainly see both sides of the, the coin there. And now another thing about the, about adding IE to, to something is it comes from the, the, the parental sphere of things mm-hmm. and, uh, and observing how children will frequently uh, add that to a word to, say, name a stuffed animal. Mm. So if it's a bear, you might just make it – it's Barry. Barry is the name of the bear. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a cutesy uh, um, addition to any word. Uh, and then that lines up with this idea that it makes something that could be viewed as being, you know, e- egotistical or nar- narcissistic as being something that is ultimately cute and harmless. Well, if you say, ah, ha, ha, I took a selfie, it almost is self-deprecating in a way that defuses the potential for someone to criticize you as narcissistic for doing it. Right, because it is – it has this feeling of being silly as well uh, uh-huh. as – you know, silly, harmless, but also maybe a little bit narcissistic. But 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 it is uh, acknowledging the inherent uh, narcissism of the act, you know, and and dismissing it with this air of silliness to it. Like if we instead of having picking up the word selfie, if we'd gone with uh, uh, ego bonk, uh, you know, <laughs> like that would probably be that's a little bit silly too. But I could see where people would be a, a little less inclined to use that uh, terminology if they were like, "Well, I'm, I'm early for my meeting. Here's a quick ego bonk." Uh, you know, quick selfie works a lot better, and it's a little a little catchier. Yeah, or if we'd called it like uh, self porn or something. Yeah, no, I'm gonna take that back. Sorry. You know, I just said and then tried to take it back, but you, you convinced me we should go down this road. I was saying another alternative. What would you call it? You call it something like mirror porn or, or something like that, you know, self-porn. Right. Uh, because th- this is now a common suffix. Yeah, absolutely. You hear people talking about what food porn or uh, – food porn I think was the big one that caught hold. The uh-huh. idea that uh, – of, of of saying that uh, generally photography of, of food uh, and a picture of some sort of a very delicious looking uh, dish or, or a beverage or something uh, is therefore – therefore should be – uh, compared to pornography, which is a weird pairing because pornography is incredibly uh, divisive in in culture. There, it is a it is you know no matter what your personal take on it, there's a lot of problematic uh, area to consider when thinking about pornography. Why do we drag it then in to our uh, consideration of say a very inviting looking lasagna? Well, yeah, it could be just what we're talking about with this possibility for selfie that it's like self-deprecating and yeah. ironic in a way that diffuses other people's ability to criticize you for engaging in it because right. it's like you're already sort of criticizing yourself. Right. And I guess you're also leaning into the idea that in, into the the excess of pornography and and therefore diffusing this like food styling, uh, you know, high art photography, food photography uh, interpretations that might otherwise be uh, 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 applied to it. Yeah. So like if you were to say, hey, I'm trying out some food photography, then people would have 
uh, would be able to say, well, actually, uh, I've seen professional food photography and, uh, you know, the, the lighting looks weird here. Um, you know, the, the fizz isn't right, uh, et cetera. You know, we've all, I think, picked up on some of the, the various tips, uh, uh, tricks and, and, uh, and illusions that are involved in that. But if you just say, oh, it's just food porn, that kind of implies that um, – that it's it's less about the art and more about an, uh, inv- invoking a a visceral response to the stimuli. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. Uh, so obviously, words like this are are great examples of powerful lexical success stories, like uh, selfie, of course, is though probably a much greater number of newly coined words just fall by the wayside, right? You know, instead they become little blips in literary history that you can find in articles from a certain time period, but they just don't catch on. They don't become common. Right. Like I'm imagining um, drunk, injured Australian dudes say a lot of interesting things, Uh but they don't all become parts of the global lexicon. Right. And I think with these examples, the things that fall by the wayside, it might be useful to think of them as sort of failed protologisms. Or protologism. Oh man, I, I think I'm going back and forth on whether that that G is hard or soft. We'll we'll just plow right through. Um, but the the idea of a protologism is a a term introduced by the Russian American uh, literary theorist Mikhail in Epstein, who I believe is still a professor at Emory University here in Atlanta. Quick question: Is the word uh, protologism a protologism or a neologism? I would say at this point, it is a neologism. It was okay. originally a protologism. Well, I guess I have to define them. Uh, so a protologism in, in Mikhail uh, Epstein's definition is that it's a word that is freshly coined and hasn't yet been accepted by many speakers at all. And the evidence of this would be that it has not yet been published by anyone other than the person or group that coined it. And I imagine they're using the term publish here in the broader sense. So not merely the printed word, but any kind of media publication in the same way, in the same way you might treat publishing and publication in, say, uh, both libel and slander law. Right. So if you are trying to make fetch happen, but mm-hmm. nobody else is, is saying fetch, then it's still a protologism for you. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you get a few other people saying fetch, you're starting to make fetch happen, then it's becoming a neologism. Okay. And if it keeps going and then everybody starts using it, then it's common use. Not to say it's immortal, not to say it cannot then die, fall out of fashion and die again, uh, but it has at least gained a foothold. Yeah. So by these standards, I would say protologism was once a protologism, but it is no longer a protologism given that you can find articles out there that are not written by Mikhail Epstein himself that are using this term and, and talking about it. So it has probably legitimately graduated to being a, a fledgling neologism. It's mm-hmm. you know still sort of a, a, a young word, a word that not everybody knows, but it has use outside the the original, you know, like the room where it was created or the person who tried to coin it. Right. Uh, so under this model, the progression goes like that. You've a, a person or a group coins a new term or usage. This is a protologism. And then an expanded subset of the population sort of tries out the new term for a period of time. But it still often needs to be defined or looked up. At this point, you would say it's probably a neologism. And then eventually the term just becomes a word of common use. It doesn't need to be looked up or defined in the context in which it is normally used. I mean, people still have to look up all kinds of words, but like there, there at least will be contexts in which the word is regularly used and, and the people within those contexts all know what it means. I'd say a good indicator here is when uh, people mostly stop Googling the word for a definition. Imagine there's a new word. Let's say it is uh, schmurfplex. Like in the first time you hear it, someone says, hey, come to my house at eight and bring your schmurfplex. Well, I don't know what a schmertplex is, and that sentence gives me no context. I have no idea what I'm supposed to bring. All I know is a schmertplex can be brought, but schmertplex could be – it could be an attitude. It could be <laughs> – it could, it could be a physical thing. It, I don't know. Or you, someone might say – It means pizza cutter, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I, there's no way to tell. Someone might say, gosh, I really like Dylan. I just wish he wasn't so schmertplexy. Again, no idea of that. Um, depending on how it's said, you might be able to lean into positive or negative interpretations. But beyond that, 
hard to say. Now, if someone says, I can't wait to smirplex that slice of pizza, or dude, you smirplex that slice of pizza in one gulp, both of these examples give you far more context for <laughs> not only how it is being used, but then how it can be reused appropriately. Yeah. Or at least semi-appropriately. And then with some course correction, you can uh, wind up in a place where you are finally using this new term correctly and passing it virally on to those around you. Well, this example brings up a great question, which is why would you bother inventing a new word for something? Right. Uh, Aside, of course, uh, to, to illustrate a point in a podcast. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it's clear why you do it there. But what, like, what if you were actually trying to make Schmertplex happen? <laughs> uh, is there a reason you would be doing this? Maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can talk about that. All right. We're back. All right, we were asking the question of why protologisms are coined. Uh, when somebody comes up with a new word for something on purpose, why does that happen? One pretty important reason for coining a new term, obviously, I think, comes about often in science, and that's discovering a new process or proposing a new theory. You're essentially saying we have new, new content in the world now and we need a word to describe it. It's not something that you're already familiar with that we just wanted a different word for, right? Mm -hmm. So I found a short article from 2011 by Andrew Moore, who's the editor-in-chief of a journal called Bioessays. Uh, and in this article, he talks about the importance of neologisms in the sciences and he writes the following, neologisms or protologisms, quote, may be considered seductive in two senses. Firstly, because their creators are seduced by the ability to express a potentially new scientific concept in language, a creative act that might stake their claim as the first to discover something. Secondly, because they often find favor in the rest of the scientific community for their conciseness. Hmm. So here Moore argues that in the sciences, protologisms play multiple roles. The first, of course, is the, the straightforward utility uh, being that they are concise. So like once Charles Barnes invented the word photosynthesis – it was much more convenient to just say photosynthesis than to say the process by which autotrophic organisms like plants use energy from sunlight to convert carbon dioxide and water into sugars. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue <laughs> much better. Right. You, you don't want to have to explain that process every time you talk about it. You can just use the one new word now. And new terms appear in the sciences all the time because they're indisputably useful. They save time. They save space. And now, now you all uh, have the same word you can refer to when you're talking about something so you know you're talking about the same thing. In addition to that, though, this thing Moore is drawing attention to is that they may play a psychological and social role within their use in the sciences because a neologism, number one, it helps its coiner secure credit for having identified or proposed the thing or the hypothesis in question. And I think this is really truly the case. I think how often on this very show – uh, historical priority for discoveries and inventions is in fact disputed, but we generally end up trying to give recognition to the first person to use the same word that everybody still uses for the thing. Right, yeah. When it, when someone is calling uh, the particular invention by a different term, it's sort of implied that they they didn't have it figured out all the way. Right. Even maybe even if that person was more important in the in the technological discoveries that mm -hmm. led to the to the invention. Right, right. Yeah, because ultimately yeah, the, the the spread of the name is tied with the spread of the idea. I feel like we have repeatedly run into this in invention history where, you know, somebody else's work was more pivotal, but ultimately credit goes to the person who came up with the word. But then the other point is that the new word also makes other scientists more likely to remember and discuss your hypothesis or discovery because it's easier to talk about when it has a name, especially if it has a catchy name. Uh, so Moore writes uh, – he gives an example, quote, It is said that Kerr et al. in their landmark 1972 paper coined the term apoptosis and of course that means um, you know, programmed cell death within the body uh, from the Greek apo meaning from and ptosis meaning falling uh, to sound similar to necrosis, its biological counterpart. Though at the time, more than a few scientists doubted that the new word was anything more than an imposter disguising a specific case of necrosis, it certainly helped to catapult the concept into new realms of attention and hence testability. 
Uh, so this is interesting. It's like if you're a scientist, you've got a new phenomenon you, you think you've discovered or a hypothesis you want more people to investigate. If you come up with a good word for it, other scientists are more likely to pay attention and start putting your idea to the test. In a weird way, uh, to come back to the invention parallels, it's very much like branding and marketing. Yeah, I think uh, um, evolution is another great example of this. You know, like mm. the, the the term uh, so nicely uh, sums up uh, what is otherwise a, a fairly complicated process that might not roll off the tongue as easily. You know? Oh, and this was huge at the time uh, with uh, you know Darwin mm-hmm. agonizing over what was the best terminology to use to explain in a simple way his complex ideas. Like there was the competition within the theory for you know was it better to call it. Uh, natural selection or survival of the fittest. Right. We have an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind where we talk about just like the, the fight back and forth between those two terms, which sort of describe the same thing, but they have different marketing appeals. Now, uh, the other side of, of the coin in all of this is, is that while, while the use of words uh, like this can certainly make it easier to communicate about topics within the sciences, uh, there's, there is evidence to indicate that it can, uh, in some cases, make it harder for those outside the field to understand what's being discussed. Uh, and, and this can often result in a, in a lack of interest in science or politics, is another example that's brought up, or a feeling that one is not good at science or politics. You know? mm-hmm. and so, so not, a, not a, an idea that you don't understand it and maybe you can't understand it. Um, this according to a fairly recent 2020 study from Hilary Shulman, assistant professor of communication at The Ohio State University. Um, yeah, just came out in the last couple of months. Uh, basically, the idea is that this, the specialized terms uh, they were looking at were uh, were proving to be a stumbling block to interest. And this, of course, just drives home the importance of science communication and journalism in the fields of science and politics. Uh, because obviously, you need those specialized terms within science, within the sciences, mm-hmm. uh, within like you know academic uh, discussion of politics, etc. Right. But then, if you were going to convey those ideas to the to the world outside of that in-group, mm-hmm. you have to have more generalized terminology. You have to find to have a way of reaching them at least until those terms become so widely used that you don't have to worry about it. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, there, there are different uh, considerations in play in these different types of communication. I mean, right. in scientific publications, yeah, you, you would waste a lot of space if you couldn't use technical jargon. It just like allows you to say a lot more in a lot less words. Right. And a lot of this also comes words, down sorry. to <laughs> intended audience as well. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the average person on the street is not the intended reader for uh, an academic uh, neuroscience paper. Right. Uh, likewise, I am not the in, uh, the intended listener for a you know a very specific uh, '90s dance hall uh, 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 reggae uh, tune. You know? Yes. Um, I have to come to it as an outsider. And now it's possible that you know years or decades down the road, some of those termino- terms uh, become part of the the general lexicon in either example, but. It's not necessarily going to be the case. Now, there are examples clearly, I think, where what you're talking about, though, where technical language is just purely counterproductive um, (laughs) or at least counterproductive given what somebody might state their their aims are, maybe not to what their actual aims are. Joe, are you saying that it's time to synergize backward overflow? (laughs) I think it's time to talk a little bit about corporate speak. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so, of course, one of my favorite sources of everyday comedy and shame is corporate speak, this vast, shallow pool of business neologisms that I sometimes imagine us just sort of spending our days ladling over one another, like so much stagnant <laughs> pond water. Yes, we do have um, to swim through it from time to time. Yeah, and there was recently a really excellent article, I thought, on corporate speak in New York Magazine. It was from February of this year, so 2020, by Molly Young called Garbage Language, Why Do Corporations speak the way they do. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, this was a very funny and insightful article uh, on, on the phenomenon of business buzzwords, which she calls garbage language, taking the term from a, a novelist. And by that, you might guess where she stands on the subject. And of course, this kind of language is easy to hate, but that doesn't make her wrong. Uh, she begins with an example of a corporate word that she encountered at a startup where she recently worked. Quote, the term was parallel path. And I first heard it in this sentence. We're waiting on specs from the San Francisco installation. Can you parallel path two versions? <laughs> Translated, this means we're waiting on specs from the San Francisco installation. Can you make two versions? 
So she summarizes, in other words, to parallel path is to do two things at once. That's all. Huh. But uh, it gives it this kind of – it almost has like a Buddhist air to it, right? There's yes. this, like the middle path, parallel paths. It, it sounds far more peaceful than – can you do twice as much work as we originally talked about? <laughs> I, I'm sure you, you know, you've probably heard me complain about this on one of our shows before. This kind of thing is so annoying to me. And I want to be clear. I understand the creation of new technical terms in business when they function the way that words normally do, right, by putting a concise name to something that would otherwise require more explanation. And I think there are plenty of perfectly legitimate business terms that are actually useful and they could be compared to specific technical jargon in like medicine or the sciences. One example here might be the original use of disruption or disruptive. Mm -hmm. Like originally this referred to a specific thing. It wasn't a new word, but it was a word that gained a new usage in a business context. And uh, this was uh, coined by a guy named Clayton. Christensen in the 90s, and it referred to like an innovation that creates a new market and a new type of value displacing old markets and old values. So an example might be the mass production of automobiles with the Model T, which isn't just a new competitor entering a market, but it completely kind of disrupts the transportation market. It, you know, upsets the old like traditional horse and buggy market. Uh, but even with this word, which originally I think has a specific meaning and is useful, I think there's a kind of semantic creep, right, where over time its meaning becomes less specific and people start using the word disruption or disruptive to just refer to any business innovation or maneuver that they want to be seen as new and dynamic. Yeah. It, it's, li- it's like using the word like powerful or strong. Yeah. You see people describing business things as disruptive that are in in no way really changing markets or creating new markets. They're just like – they're just saying like, you know, we're going to be big. Yeah. We're going to spend a lot of money on this and enter the market. So some words really have a meaning, but at the same time, a lot of corporate speak just feels like replacing one number of normal, understandable words with an equal number or more of confusing, buzzy technical words. There's no efficiency advantage in the communication. The communication becomes understandable by a smaller number of people. Why does this happen? Well, uh, with regard to the idea of a parallel path, Young continues, quote, I thought there was something gorgeously and inadvertently candid about the phrase's assumption that a person would ever not be doing more than one thing at a time in an office. (laughs) It's denial that the whole point of having an office job is to multitask ineffectively instead of single-tasking effectively. Why invent a term for what people were already forced to do? It was, in its fakery and puffery and lack of a reason to exist, the perfect corporate neologism. Now, hold on. One can multitask in a ineffectively at home as well as in the office. That's <laughs> quite true. I, uh, I, I think we can all attest to that. But, but no, I, I get their point here. As she discusses a bunch more examples, I think, I'd say the article is very worth reading. And of course, she's fairly merciless in hypothesizing the reasons these terms are often used. For example, she says that, you know, some corporates speak simply reflects a desire to reimagine exactly what type of work it is you're doing Mm -hmm. and what that work means. Uh, She says, quote, Our attraction to certain words surely reflects an inner yearning. Computer metaphors appeal to us because they imply futurism and hyper-efficiency, while the language of self-empowerment hides a deeper anxiety about our relationship to work, a sense that what we're doing may actually be trivial, that the reward of free snacks for cultural fealty is not an exchange that benefits us, that none of this was worth going into student debt for, and that we could be fired instantly for complaining on Slack about it. And she ends this uh, string of thoughts by saying, empowerment language is a self-marketing asset as much as anything else, a way of selling our jobs back to ourselves. Uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of times it does seem... Very, you know, intentionally euphemistic. Yeah. You know, to, uh, uh, try to having to ex- explain, describe something in terms that are less 
damaging or more positive. Uh, like one example that comes to mind is is, uh, is something that's used a lot in, in business speak, and that's pivoting. Oh, you know, yeah. Pivoting to video, for example, uh-huh. uh, which sounds a lot better than you know drastically or recklessly changing course uh-huh. or being thrown uh, you know, thrown off course by you know the, the slightest change in the the winds of, uh, of of public demand and business that sort of thing. Uh, pivot sounds like very geometric, you know. It yeah. sounds very precise and premeditated. It's what your office chair does when you turn to look at your other monitor. Yes. An obvious one about uh, an obvious one of these euphemisms is just trying to cover up hard truths is like when I don't know, all of the buzzy corporate words for basically firing people. Oh, yeah. Like, are you going to fire people? Or are you going to terminate people? Or are you going to engage in a strategic headcount reduction? Uh-huh. Or a new one. This was one that only uh, came out uh, recently, to my knowledge, employment dislocation, Oof. which when I first read it, I had no idea what it meant. I was like, oh, I guess they moved their jobs to another city. Uh, like, there was, ge- there was a geographic change, and maybe it wasn't that bad. And I think, no, it, we're, what we're talking about is just people being terminated. Yeah. I mean, but it, but then again, you know, I look at it from a business's standpoint and like no biz, what business is going to um, you know send out a, a corporate email and, and begin by saying, whew, we just really had a bloodbath, everybody. Right. <laughs> if you're reading this, you're all right. But you know, no, no, nobody's going to engage in that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, inner communication about what has happened or outer communication. You're, you're, you're going to want to put a positive spin on it and leave the, uh, the, the negative interpretations uh, to other folks to do. Well, well, you know, one of the worst things about this type of language is as much as I hate it, I sometimes find myself unconsciously using it in work emails and stuff. I don't mean to, but it, it infects you. Oh, here's one. Here's one that we've I've seen used uh, here at work uh, from time to time. What happens when a new podcast or even an older podcast uh, is not living up to expectations? Well, do you just uh, cancel it? Do you terminate it? Or do you sunset it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's one of those great examples. Yeah. yeah. There, well, one of the things uh, Young talks about a lot in the article is the recent explosion of new agey language mm. in uh, in business, you know, corporate speak. Like there are these phases where uh, corporate speak in the 80s was infected with all these Wall Street style terms. Yeah. And in the 90s, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of like war and battle type language in corporate speak. And for some reason, now we're in an age of new agey kind of mystical corporate speak. <laughs> Are they saying things like, uh, all right, it's time to really open up the chakras on this new uh, ad campaign? Like, I think there are some things yeah. like that. I think a lot of it probably comes from the tech world, actually, where yeah. there, you know, there are a ton of people in the tech world who are also plugged into like Eastern religion and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I guess you could say a lot of it is, is tied to, in these cases, to putting a new spin on something that is familiar, uh, t- like taking something that may seem uh, even exotic and using that as a way to recast something that is uh, for, far more ordinary. Yeah, I think there, there are several reasons we can come away with here why we often see the introduction of neologisms in the corporate world. One is to sort of reimagine or put a new psychological spin on what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it, it makes it feel maybe more spiritual or makes it feel more combative or so, whatever it is that gets you amped up. Right. Another is to, yeah, be euphemistic, to like to take hard truths and make them sound like something different than they are. And then I would say there is another one, which is just a desire to sound professional. Yeah. Uh, like there's this idea that, OK, where are people definitely doing real work? One place you know that they're doing that is like in the sciences and in engineering and stuff. And they have lots of technical jargon. You know, but in the sciences and engineering, you probably need a lot of technical jargon right. that is not actually – there's nothing equivalent to it that's necessary in a normal office. But you have this desire to feel like you are accomplishing things at the same level as the sciences or in engineering. Right. Oh, and then, of course, to come back to politics, and politics is very much a, an example of, 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 of a situation where you're needing to continually spin things. Yeah. Uh, either in one direction or the other. And uh, and in doing so, you come up with different uh, di- different uh, terminologies, uh, di- different uh, descriptions of, of what uh, – of, of things that are essentially the same. Yes. 
I, th- I think that fits more in with the uh, the one about you know wanting to reimagine your job or sell your job back to yourself right. with you know new uh, corporate neologisms because they they help you feel a certain way. Uh, you know, in politics, obviously, you're trying to make other people feel a certain way about a concept by using pushy terminology about it. All right, we're going to take one more break, but when we come back, uh, you know, we're going to get into. A little bit of science fiction-y uh, territory here as we look at a couple of examples of, uh, of new words that came upon us and, uh, and some of their, uh, their, their fictional origins, but also some of the fictional engines that help them uh, uh, reach their place in our lexicon. All right, we're back. So we were going to talk about a couple more interesting examples of invented words and what they tell us about the you know the, the process by which words are coined. Uh, the next one I think is interesting because its common usage is so uh, in tension with the spirit of its coinage, and that word is robot. Right, and boy, this is one that is um, robot is so broadly used these mm-hmm. days too. Things that are perhaps not technically robots get called robots. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then things that sometimes things that are, for uh, all intents and purposes, robots don't get called robot. It's uh, it, it's it's a weird one. So yeah. th- this will be a, a wonderful journey. So you could be forgiven for assuming that the word robot was coined by an inventor, right? Somebody mm-hmm. who maybe somebody who made automata or somebody who created an early autonomous machine. Right. But no, not at all. This invented word, like so many others we have discussed, actually comes from a work of fiction. That work was a play called R-U-R, which stood for Rossum's Universal Robots. And this was a play written by the Czech writer and intellectual Karel Čapek. It premiered in 1921, and its basic plot was that an inventor named Rossum creates a series of artificial humans to serve as slaves for regular humans, but these slaves ultimately revolt against their human creators and they basically kill all the humans and they take over and then they find out, oh, no, we don't know how to make more of ourselves. Uh, But these slaves in the play are known as robots and this word is not invented out of whole cloth. It's adapted from a Czech word. I think it comes from an old Slavonic term. Uh, The word is robota, R-O-B-O-T-A, which means forced labor or servitude. It is the kind of labor that would have been done by serfs under feudalism. Now, of course, this idea of a robot is somewhat different from what it usually means today. Today, a robot – is generally some kind of machine that operates with some degree of independence and moves with some degree of freedom, mimicking human or animal movement. Uh, You can tell from what I just said, of course, that the concept is actually a little bit hazy, even though it is so widely used. But the robots in Chopik's play, while they are manufactured products, are not depicted as being mechanical machines made out of metal. They're closer, I think, to the replicants of Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. They are sort of like basically humans in every respect except they are manufactured instead of born. And the comparison to Blade Runner is very close when you look at some of the text in the play. Uh, For example, there's this part where there's a triumphal speech given by a robot named Radius after he and the other robot rebels uh, seize power from the humans. Radius says, quote, The power of man has fallen. By gaining possession of the factory, we have become masters of everything. The period of mankind has passed away. A new world has arisen. Mankind is no more. Mankind gave us too little life. We wanted more life. Oh, man. That's Roy Batty, right? Yeah, you can just you can envision him giving that speech. And so it makes me think that RUR must have directly inspired Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, certainly Ridley Scott's uh, uh, adaptation of uh, the original Philip K. Dick, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But I don't think that line is in the Philip K. Dick. I don't. It's been a long time since I read it, but I don't don't remember that as being part of it. Like I remember picking up that as – I think that was the first Philip K. Dick book I read. And my experience was probably like a lot of people pick it up expecting Blade Runner, the film, uh-huh. and it's you get something different. There are a lot of differences between the novel and the book. The book is great, but oh, it's, it's wonderful! It's, it is uh, very different. Yeah. It's very different. the The book is wonderful for the kind of state of unreality that it conjures mm-hmm. because of like the moments where the main character starts to wonder if he is real or not. It's yeah. very Philip K. Dick. 
I was I would remember being so excited to read Blade Runner that I even read another another novel that was called Blade Runner. What? That was like a, a futuristic sci-fi world about it had to do with like a medical um a medical black market, like generally somebody who's running like surgical blades. What? Did yeah. this come out after the movie? This was like I'm not sure when it came out. I, I just remember <laughs> finding a what felt like an old book okay. uh, in my school library. And I was like, all right, it's close enough. I'll read the whole thing. So I read, oh, read it. And I remember it being entertaining, but it also not Blade Runner. Hmm. Well, anyway, I was reading a, a good article about this in the MIT Press by a Penn State professor named John M. Jordan. Uh, and Jordan lays out some interesting context for RUR. Uh, he writes of Chopek, quote, like many of his peers, he was appalled by the carnage wrought by the mechanical and chemical weapons that marked World War I as a departure from previous combat. He was also deeply skeptical of the utopian notions of science and technology. And you should remember, this was a time of great technological utopianism. You know, remember our episodes on the invention of the supposed death ray in this period, which yeah. despite the name, was actually pitched as something beautiful and humane. It was a technology that would end all possibility of war. It would bring about an era of peace and harmony. And the death ray is by far, you know, not the only example. This was the time of, you know, Tesla and Marconi and so many others fielding the idea that coming technologies would eliminate war and disease and want. Uh, but of course, there were many others like Chopek who reacted to the technological horrors of World War I with skepticism about the promises of, of new science and technology. Uh, and so, yeah, he's criticizing this idea of, of science that is that is not concerned with big questions or with ethics or or even the, the, the ultimate purpose of its own endeavor that is just concerned with like what sort of leverage it can have over the physical world. What can you produce? Uh, but Jordan characterizes Chopek's opinion on mechanization by saying, quote, when mechanization overtakes basic human traits, people lose the ability to reproduce. As robots increase in capability, vitality, and self-awareness, humans become more like their machines. Humans and robots, in Chopek's critique, are essentially one and the same. The measure of worth, industrial productivity, is won by the robots that can do the work of two and a half men. Such a contest implicitly critiques the efficiency movement that emerged just before World War I, which ignored many essential human traits. Of course, this makes me think about Dune, right? The implications of the uh, the, the past Butlerian Jihad. That's right. Yeah, yeah, when, in which uh, humans rise up against um, uh, the rule of machines, but it's implied as certainly in the, the original uh, books that it's not just a it's not simply a matter of rising up against machine overlords in the physical totalitarian sense, but in a philosophical sense. The idea right. that the, the the machine way of life, the machine way of thinking has corrupted what it is to be human. Exactly. Yes. It's not just that they're like you know enemies that are trying to rule us. They've changed our nature and we don't want that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, given the views of the play, there's just some intense irony that this is actually the terminology that was adopted by people who would end up wanting to make autonomous machines for a living. Like, you know, and of course, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to go into robotics. I think robots can have a lot of wonderful uses. Oh, yes, um, certainly. But the, the term you're using is saying like, I want to go into robotics is like literally like, I want to go into creating slaves that will destroy <laughs> our spirit and render us useless. Yeah. That's fascinating. One last thing about the word robot. Its pronunciation also appears to have changed over time. At various times, it might have been pronounced more like robot. Robot. Is it ever, but was it ever pronounced robot like uh, Zoidberg does I, in Futurama? I think maybe at some point it was. There, there have been multiple different ways of saying it. <laughs> Now, speaking of technological fear and apprehension, um, the, the next uh, word we're going to consider here is, uh, is a perfect extension of this and ties into some of these same themes, and that is, of course, clone. Mm. So clone was apparently first recorded uh, to, uh, to have been used somewhere between 1900 and 1905. And it's uh, from the Greek word clone, uh, a slip, uh, a, a twig uh, with clear botanical roots here. Uh, plant uh, physiologist Herbert J. Weber coined the term in reference to the technique for propagating new plants uh, through the use of uh, cuttings, uh, bulbs, and buds. 
And I was uh, reading about this uh, in an interview that Science Friday in their Science Diction series uh, conducted with Harold Markle, professor of history of medicine uh, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, and uh, one thing that uh, Markle pointed out is that Weber was kind of t- trying to decide what term to use. Like he didn't just fire from the hip here and mm-hmm. think, "All right, what is the what what should, what word should I use?" And Maybe with some of those considerations we talked about earlier. In exactly. Mind. Yeah. Uh, so one of the, the other like major contender that he came up with is actually pretty great. Uh, it is the word strafe, a combination of strain and wraith. Wow. Uh, but he you know decided it was too clumsy. Ugh. But that being said, I want there's got to be a sci-fi treatment out there um, somewhere where someone has decided to abandon the word clone and just talk about straths. Uh, like that, that just changes the whole um, situation. Imagine, if you will, if throughout the Star Wars universe, instead of saying clone, <laughs> they said straths. Attack of the straths. Yeah, yeah. Like that would have added. It would have made it feel a. It would have been rooted in the actual origin uh, of our usage of clone. But it would have given it this slightly different feel. And indeed, Straith, with its wraith connotation, it feels a little weirder. Like it's more in line with, well, to come back to uh, Herbert, uh, the use of the Golas in Dune, mm-hmm. you know, where you know, he doesn't, uh, doesn't call them clones. He call, you know, calls them Gulas, creates this new word that uh, uh, drags in other, um, other uh, you know, feelings, other words, other connotations. So um, – at any rate, Markle, you know, adds that this concept steadily took off. Uh, you saw it uh, used a lot in the um, agricultural wor- world because that's, of course, where it was originally uh, u- utilized. But then it bleeds over into science fiction. Uh, however, there are cases where you could have seen someone use clone a lot more uh, where they didn't. For instance, uh, Huxley in Brave New World doesn't refer to it uh, as cloning, refers to it instead as the uh, Bakanovsky process. <laughs> But uh, uh, but Markle points to two specific uses of clone in the 1970s that really helped to push it into the popular lexicon. Okay. The first of which uh, is Alvin and Heidi Toffler's bestseller Future Shock from the year 1970. I know you like this and the uh, the, the weird Orson Welles documentary. Yeah, the weird the weird Orson Welles documentary, which I, I recommend looking up on YouTube, is is great and a little bit cheesy. The work of the Tofflers throughout their career, they wrote various texts, uh, futurism texts, where they're talking about, you know, trends and how we, how we um, anticipate and receive new technologies. And, and generally, the idea of future shock is the idea that the world is changing so rapidly. There's all these new technologies coming online that it overwhelms us, and we feel this sense of future shock. Uh, and, and even today, it's a, you know, it's, it's a work that is, to a certain extent, dated by their later works, you know, that the, they spent their, their lives, they spent their careers uh, covering uh, this, uh, this area of consideration. Uh, but it's still a very readable text, and I, I recommend it. But this is a, this is a line from future, this is a paragraph from Future Shock where the Tofflers discuss this. Quote, one of the more fascinating possibilities is that man will be able to make biological carbon copies of himself. Through a process known as cloning, it will be possible to grow from the nucleus of an adult cell a new organism that has the same genetic characteristics of the person contributing the cell nucleus. The resultant human copy would start life with a genetic endowment identical to that of the donor, although cultural differences might thereafter alter the personality or physical development of the clone. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, interestingly enough, in that uh, Science Friday interview, Howard Markle uh, pointed to another work from the 70s, this time a fictional work, a 1976 novel by Ira Levin, The Boys from Brazil. Oh, the one about uh, don't they want to clone another Hitler? Yeah, it's a, it, it concerns a, a fictional plot where you have uh, uh, Nazi expats living in South America who are hatching a scheme to clone Adolf Hitler. Uh, you know, using cloning technology to create all of these uh, the, these these male children, and then trying to figure out how to raise them so that you can nurture their genetic legacy into you know, I guess the ideal form of the Führer, um, which. I know there are a lot of problems with this plot, a lot of holes in this plot, uh, but it was a very popular work. And uh-huh. they, they made a, a, a pretty uh, – I remember being a pretty entertaining uh, film uh, version of this as well in which it's Gregory got, Peck plays uh, 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 Dr. Joseph Mengele. But also uh, Lawrence Olivier is the good guy, right? Yeah, the he Nazi plays hunter. the Nazi hunter. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I have very vague memories of this film. I think I saw it on American Movie Classics back in the day. But I remember it, I remember it being – 
disturbing and effective in places. I never read the book myself, but I was leafing. I picked up, grabbed a copy of it and leafed through it before uh, we, we we recorded this this episode. And uh, I did run across a passage where uh, one character is telling another about the origin of the word cl- uh, clone and referring to the uh, you know the, the Greek and the uh, and the, uh, the the botanical origins of the term. Uh, so anyway, I guess the idea here is that you, know, you have two popular works that are using uh, the word clone, and they help to sort of boost the signal throughout uh, you know, the, the fictional world and just the, the, the popular conceptions of the science itself. One of the funny things, though, in this selection you pulled out is that uh, one character says that the old word for cloning was mononuclear reproduction and then complains, why would you coin a new word like clone when the old ones convey more? And the <laughs> other character says cloning is shorter. Oh, Yes. How true, Kloss. Uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> I was going to actually read this this uh, this bit from um, the the boys from Brazil, but I, I thought it might be a little confusing because he, the 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 character that is explaining it uh, mentions a, a different uh, biologist, mentions an English biologist by the name of Haldane, which uh, I, I thought might confuse uh, people who uh, were listening to the the origin story that we've uh, presented thus far. Oh, okay. Well, I hope I didn't confuse anybody. No. <laughs> but I like how they reproduce the same conversation. Yeah, yeah. Just... <laughs> it's interesting. And I, it is, I, again, worth, I think, stressing the importance of, of science fiction, especially with scientific terminology, because there are plenty of other examples where a, a bit uh, like an idea is presented first in science fiction and then gets picked up uh, as a possibility within the sciences. Yeah, you might think that somebody created a robot and then came up with the name robot, but no. Yeah. Goodness, and this is without even getting into the the situation where you have fictional worlds that uh, in, in which the creator comes up with their own lexicon for like a uh, an alternate reality or a futuristic reality. Mm-hmm. Like one of the, I think the more jarring examples of this would be uh, A Clockwork Orange. Mm. Or uh, Ian and Banks uh, wrote a book called Fearsome Engine uh, that is. A, to- a, a totally um, a worthwhile read, but it has like I think three different perspectives in it, and one of them is a um, is is uh, is like is written in this futuristic slang, and it's really really takes a, a little bit of getting used to before you're rolling with it and understanding what the character is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know. I mean, it's arguable to what extent those kind of exercises ever actually produce new words, but there's certainly the potentiality is there. Um, you know, anytime, uh, anytime a new word is presented, you're you're putting out the possibility that it could uh, it could become a part of language itself. Yeah, I guess so. I guess you can't know what uh, you can't know when you're making a word happen, right? Right. You, you introduce something, and it's like I don't know. It's it's in their hands now. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, hopefully this uh, we, we received a lot of great feedback from our previous episode on invented words. So hopefully we'll hear a lot of great uh, feedback on this episode as well. We would obviously love to hear everyone's thoughts on uh, on, on new words that they've picked up, new words that you've rejected, uh, or are there words from science fiction specifically that you find yourself using within a particular in group or a fandom? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there are there some that you wish would be picked up by the by the the, the wider world at large? What what are the worst business neologisms you've uh, oh, had yes. to deal with yes. on a regular basis? Please share those with us for sure. Or the best, you know. Uh, again, yeah. I don't want to deny. Sometimes they might be useful. Sometimes they're very useful. All right. <laughs> you say with utter despair. <laughs> no. All right. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, you will find this show anywhere you get your podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. If you go to inventionpod.com, that will also shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.